What do we talk about when we talk about regret? This is Afterwards, a podcast series exploring how regrets shapes our lives. Episode 1 A warrior, after all. I am a baby of the civil rights movement. And so I, I remember vividly um, when Dr. King was assassinated. I was living in Harlem, and Harlem was all black. And you could almost cut the air with a knife. So what I remember about it is um, people were looting. People were so angry that they were they spent the whole night and morning, you could look out your window and see people carrying things. And even as a child, what I remember is see all the things that, that people were taking, looting, stealing. That's how people expressed their frustration. It was their neighborhood, it was our neighborhood, and yet they were destroying our neighborhood in in trying to express themselves about the anger and the sadness of Dr. King having been assassinated. But my parents didn't talk about it. And my um, parents were of the mindset that we put a roof over your head, we put food in your mouth, we have nothing to do with that. And so my um, entryway into writing poetry was the anger and the frustration and not understanding what was going on. It was, and continues to be, there may be things that I don't understand or have no control over, but from my pen, I can release them onto paper and get about the business of living. Ready? Dear Rhonda and Diana, I made it to becoming 62 years old. Little could I imagine long ago, so many years ago, I would see 30, let alone my 60s. You two were my nemesis when we were all young. You haunted my dreams and frequently were my waking nightmares, my constant source of fear. There were times so afraid of the thought of you two bullying me another day, I symbolically ran out of my skin, dreaded the end of the school day. Now, so many years later, I regret not standing up to you early on in life, allowing you so much of my young self. I loathe being me for many years. If only I had known that your joy obtained from bullying me was really your envy of me. I felt myself such a small person among us in all the schools you two seemed to stalk me at back then. Yet always in classrooms, hallways, lunchrooms, and of course on the block we shared, you two managed to find and torment me. Had I known all it would have taken was for me to stand my ground, confront you both either separately or together in order to change the course of those earlier years, 
I would have gathered the courage, risk the consequences to be able to focus my attention on what really mattered, what I might have enjoyed instead of your relentless taunting, bullying me into feeling as if your treatment was warranted. Instead of after all these years, realizing your bullying me had little to do with me. It had to do instead with who you were, who you saw me as, and perhaps who you knew I would become in spite of you two bullying me. A warrior after all. Rhonda was about my height and Diana was her physical features were that was that she was light she was thin so it was almost as if Diana was the leader and Rhonda was the follower I never remember them separate I always remember them being together and together they tormented me everywhere I went, you know, there they were. The The fear for me was so, I could cut it with a knife. I enjoyed sleeping more than being awoke. I enjoyed my dream. When I was um, awakened to go to, to school, I dreaded it. I, I dreaded, I dreaded every moment of it, knowing that, you know, this day would be spent in school, and at some point of this day, there would be bullying. And the, the thing back thing is wait till three o'clock. So it's now one o'clock, you've been threatened, you know, and you really, uh, you know, it, what is the, the fight or flight? I'm a flight person. So I wanted to just run away and couldn't go home. So I had no other choice but to stay there and, and the fear build up it's almost three o'clock here we go again and it, and no back way of getting out you know I'm, I'm have to come out the front door and that's where they are we've all lived in the same block so it wasn't like i could get away from them so it was almost like school and back or or library and back i had to be careful of where i actually went because i might run into them And see, we had, back then, we even had um, what they call block parties. Like in the summertime, each block, you know, people would bring out refreshments, people would um, be cooking food and all this. And I couldn't even go to the block party because their, their family, they and their families occupied that block. What happened was we were in our first year of high school and I saw her and then down the hall, I saw the two of them peeking around the corner. So they had pushed her up to fight me. She was taller than me. And one of the things back then people would start a fight rather was saying that someone talked about your mother. So that's how she, that's how she approached me. You know, I heard you talked about my mother. And I knew it wasn't true and she knew it wasn't true. And she kept inching closer to me. This is so stupid. 
and and we're actually going to fight over this. And so instinctively, I just pushed her away to to get out of her coming so close. And that's actually what started our fighting. I had I had been afraid so long of those two. And then to see them, you know, in the background, knowing that they had pushed this girl up. When I fought her, I was fighting them and not her. And it was really fists, you know, that kind of scratching girl kind of fighting. And what I remember last was um, we were in the hallway and the fight went all the way into, we were in the basement. The fight went all the way inside of a room. And when they broke it up, I had her over a big sink and I was just wailing on her. <laughs> I was just wailing, yeah. I think that it had been so many years and so many times that they saw fear in me, that they saw me not do anything, that they, they um, assumed perhaps rightfully so that I was afraid of them that the the sight of me actually fighting that that told them given the right circumstances it did not always mean that i was going to be afraid enough not to take action and i think that probably shocked them because after that i never i never encountered them in terms of being a bully to me again I don't even have any real memories of them after that fight. So the, I think that's where the regret comes from. It's like, had I known all I had to do you know, was, was fight someone for y'all to stop tormenting me, I'd have done it earlier. <laughs> I've become someone who will fight for myself. As I've gotten older, I've gone through a lot of different battles, if you will. Um, and they've not been physical, but, but they've been just as powerful. And yet I've come through them. I've learned that you, you are a fighter and you're not, you're not as afraid um, as you were when you were younger. And, and that that's become my warrior cry. I, I have a principle that I say, if it's wrong, I don't care if no one else is fighting it. I don't care if I'm the only one that's going to fight it. I'm going to fight it because it's wrong. And, and I say that, and as I say that to you, what I think of is one of the um, more poignant battles that I've fought. My husband and I were in the military. What was your husband's name? David Alexander Young. was a hustler he was a liar from the beginning and um he and i shared the same um job training he was ahead of me and there were 97 females and 93 males and the first thing he said to me was he knew that he he loved me when he first saw me and i knew he was lying because we were all in uniform. There were 93, 97 females and 90. He didn't know what I looked like. But he said he waited back so that he could meet me 
um he was funny um and he now he was a hustler he he could get money he was a pool hustler and he was younger than me and i didn't know that until we actually applied for a marriage license cuz i i was 21 and it turns out he was 20 and i didn't find out until we had applied for the license and by then it was too late we had this competition with rank because he was in before i was so he would get rank and then i would try to get rank because i wanted to outrank him <laughs> but but we um yeah we we had fun we had fun there we were going to the lake and um he had a tendency to not tell the truth of where he was going and so we were going with another couple to the lake um my daughter nikki was 26 days old and he said that he was going to get gas for the car and so he took the um husband of of the the other person that went with him other you know his comrade and i was of course angry and i think about this a lot because for one second i felt this tinge of fear but it was so short so brief that i couldn't kind of identify what it was and then the other thing i remember is being angry because what i thought was well you could you could get gas when we're on the way to the lake and so i never said anything to him when he left and as time went on um he didn't come back and then eventually when there was a knock on the door it was a police officer who had asked for me and he led me to believe in what he was saying that my husband maybe had mouthed off something about what he said that he had mouthed off and that he had gotten hurt and that he was in a hospital or maybe that's what i interpreted from what he was saying but in any case um we ended up going to a police station well it's it's weird that i could remember it as if it was yesterday i mean the 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 images that i give you it it could have happened yesterday you know they're so they're so strong and i am still dealing with i have come through it because they continue to be so strong i'm i'm you know in my 60s and this happened when i was in my 20s and yet you know i still remember the room i still remember the you know where i was brought to i still remember his wallet i was up behind a i was in on a wooden bench in front of a i guess it was an interrogation room and i was there for many hours four or five hours or so um and then two things happened one thing was that from my peripheral vision there were people that had gone into the office that I'm talking about and the door was closed and I heard shots and something else and instinctively I began to cry and I didn't know what that was about but for some reason I was crying <laughs> 
And then the other thing I remember is that I remember seeing people walk in, walk by me, and look at me really sad and keep going. And and ultimately what those were were the witnesses of what had happened. And then the next thing I remember happening was that a policewoman took me downstairs to this room and she said to me that my husband had been involved in an altercation and that he was deceased. And she asked me, what do I remember him having on the last time I saw him? And the other thing I remember is that she took me upstairs to that same room that I had seen and, and I was asked the same questions and that um, what they did was they gave me my husband's wallet and his wallet had blood on it. They, and then they said, you can go. And I would not find out what happened until afterwards. And that was from the person who was in the car with him. And what he told me was that they had gone to this place to buy marijuana and that they decided for whatever reason that the marijuana was not what they wanted. They called it green. I don't know what that means. But in any case, in a bagel wagon, they were backing out of this place and the police officer stopped them and, and told one to put his hands on the dashboard and my husband to put his hands on the wheel. And then for some unknown reason, he told them to get out of the car. And as my husband was exiting the car, he just opened the door. He had not gotten up out the car, but for some reason, the police officer shot. And my husband just rolled out of the car onto the ground. That morning, I was a soldier, a wife, a new mother. And by five o'clock that evening, I was a soldier, a widow, and a single mother. I was so angry with him that I, I didn't say, you know, I love you. I didn't say, you know, those things that you would say if you, you know, knew that you would never see someone again. And I think that for a long time became the regret and something that I always shared with other people because you never know. And, and so that's why even now, you know, I, I tend to say I love you or whatever to my friends or whatever, because I, I have the experience of not knowing, you know, not having give being given that chance. For three weeks, I drove around with the bullet hole in the front of the car, in the front of the windshield. So one of the things my mother said is they know your license plate, they know your car, you need to get out of there. My daughter was less than a month old. So there was a certain amount of fear because it, it was small enough that it's small and then it was a Southern town. And yet the part of me that grew up in the civil rights era said, no, nah, it was wrong. And, 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 and in addition, I think what still holds true today is I, because it happened off base, the military refuse, they would not do anything. For a long time, I was angry with the military for having given us orders to go there and for not giving that warning that there's a possibility that even in uniform or out, if you are 
you know, of, of a certain color that you, that, that it might be unsafe. This was a military town. So there was no doubt that this may have been a soldier, you know, cause he was in khaki pants and a white t-shirt. So, you know, he had almost the uniform of a soldier, but that didn't matter. How could I look my daughter in her face, say when she was 14 or 15, and say that her father had been, you know, killed wrongfully, and all we did was run. So I became his voice. Initially, when I tried to hire an attorney um, who, who was there in town, he said, you don't understand. He said, my family is here, but he was nice enough to try to help me to find an attorney somewhere else. That was my first battle, the first um, example, if you will, are you gonna, are you gonna run? You know, are, are you gonna run or are you gonna stay here and fight? And I think that was my first, that was my first example of, I'm gonna stay here and fight regardless of the consequences. This was a place that didn't particularly like black people. So the safe mode of suing was to have the judgment by a judge. And that's why there was not a jury. The decision ultimately came out to be justifiable homicide. The police officer that killed my husband, he was suspended with pay for a week or two. I looked him up and he actually retired as a lieutenant. But they lost. The judge's decision was if not for the police officer, my husband would still be alive. And um, really that's what carries me to this day, that I was able to be his voice. And I was able to, um, in spite of how I felt, to speak up for him and to have the knowledge that, you know, I could tell my daughter that her father was wrongfully killed and that there's proof that um, he did not deserve. To. And, and it, it is still a, a court case on um, Nexus Lexus. So it still set some type of precedent because it's still in, a, in the uh, legal journals or whatever. I, I believe myself to be in a a group that I wouldn't wish on anyone else. And it's the group before there was cell phones and the ability to take wrongful death. So it's almost like being the, the grandmother to, you know, and a set of grandmothers uh, of folks who loved ones have also been wrongfully killed. You know, as someone whose husband was killed way back then, I, I see slowly that things are changing. And then um, I guess it's almost like, yeah, and those today kind of stand on the shoulders of those of yesterday who never got, you know, that justice.
You know, I know sometimes, sometimes I must be honest, sometimes I feel angry, you know, and yet um, intellectually, I know that, that all of these cases that we see are not necessarily um, representative of all of the wrongful deaths. They are just the ones that have come to the media. I remember I wanted a rocking chair to rock my child. And I remember when I came out of the hospital, he had purchased a rocking chair. And that rocking chair that he purchased, that would be the first piece of furniture that would enter any apartment <laughs> that I lived in until I think the last part of it, I think I had an arm of the rocking chair <laughs> and would take the arm of the rocking chair into the apartment. But that became a symbol of him Sometimes there is a bit of regret because the life I have now was not necessarily the life I would have chosen. That one, that one tragedy, that one, that one day, you know, a day that we were supposed to go to the lake changed the course of my life forever. June was when he was um, murdered. July would have been his birthday and August 31st was would have been our two-year anniversary. Every year, th those are the three dates. So that's really how the 12 months would go for me. When I think of having been bullied, that there were times and I thought, you know what, I can't get out of this. I've got to go to school. I know I'm going to be bullied. It's only me. And look at me now at 62. I've not only come through it, but I have turned what perhaps was immense fear into immense fearlessness. Yeah. This episode featured Aisatu Sunjata, music by Solar Firenze, and it was produced by me, Roman Beck. Stories of Regret is an awards for all funded project. See you next time.